This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. My name is Stein Ingebrigtsen, and I am an internist by trade, and I am board certified in internal medicine. This is part two of medical problems in the wilderness. First, we're going to talk about neurologic emergencies. First of those would be a cerebral vascular accident or a stroke. A cerebral vascular accident or CVA, also known as stroke, can occur anywhere but are seen in the wilderness for a variety of reasons. There are two types of stroke. The first, ischemic, which is the most common type of stroke. Obstruction of blood flow to a portion of the brain leads to one-sided weakness, paralysis, trouble talking, or facial droop. This obstruction is most commonly due to a small intra-arterial blood clot. The other kind of stroke is a hemorrhagic stroke, which, as you may assume, is a stroke due to intracerebral bleeding, most often from high blood pressure or a ruptured brain aneurysm. Patients usually have a significant headache or a denser neurologic deficit, or can even have a complete loss. The signs and symptoms of hemorrhagic and ischemic strokes are not consistent enough to allow someone to discern an ischemic stroke from a hemorrhagic stroke in the wilderness. The only real accurate way to tell the difference between ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes is by brain imaging, which would be a brain CT, CAT scan, or an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. Always consider hypoglycemia or a migraine headache as they have stroke-like symptoms. The signs and symptoms of a CBA or stroke vary depending on which part of the brain is affected. It can be a single sign or a combination of any of the following depending on the area and the extent of involvement. One of the first ones is altered mental status. Common symptoms like confusion, stupor, and unconsciousness. Other signs would be difficulty speaking or an inability to speak and uh, ataxia. Symptoms include weakness to complete paralysis with the involvement of a single leg, arm, hand, facial droop. You can get unilateral facial involvement uh, with numbness, maybe a total loss of sensation. If the symptoms resolve quickly, it is more likely what we call a transient ischemic attack or a TIA. Uh, Some people call these mini strokes. Now, a TIA is a harbinger of a stroke, so even if the symptoms resolve, this person should get out uh, and get evacuated as soon as possible. Treatment for presumed ischemic stroke, CVA, or a transient ischemic attack, or a TIA, is the same. You get the patient out as soon as possible. Aspirin can be given to an ischemic stroke, but not a hemorrhagic stroke. Since an ischemic stroke is more likely than a hemorrhagic stroke, A single aspirin is unlikely to affect a hemorrhagic stroke adversely if you're not sure of the difference. However, it is not recommended to give aspirin to a patient with a known hemorrhagic stroke. All patients with a stroke or a TIA should be evacuated from the wilderness. Another neurologic condition you can encounter in the wilderness would be a seizure. Seizures are generally uncommon medical problems in the wilderness because most people with seizures tend to avoid wilderness activities. Either that, or there are people who have well-controlled seizures. In general, patients should be seizure-free for approximately six months before attempting to trek into the wilderness for any significant amount of time. There are numerous reasons for a patient with a known seizure disorder to seize in the wilderness. Uh, 
including fatigue or lack of adequate sleep, the risk of diminished absorption of their medications due to dietary changes, a higher risk of missed medication doses due to the rigor of the trek and a different schedule than when they're at home, increased stress, which also could exacerbate someone's conditions. Now, hypoglycemia is an alternative cause of seizures and should be considered as a diagnosis. There are many forms of seizures, including generalized and partial. A generalized seizure involves a loss of consciousness and may include tonic and clonic phases lasting from one to five minutes with loss of bowel or bladder function, followed by a post-ictal period of confusion and fatigue. Seizures lasting longer than five minutes or repeat seizure activity for longer than 30 minutes or without regaining normal consciousness in between indicates status epilepticus. Mortality rate is as high as 30% and permanent neuronal damage may result within one hour in patients with uncontrolled seizures. People who have partial seizures do not lose consciousness during the seizure. Although fully aware of what's going on, they find they can't speak or move until the seizure is over. Treating a seizure in the backcountry can be a real problem uh, if everyone in the group is in a remote setting. The seizure may occur in someone while the group is doing a more technical activity, such as climbing or rafting. When treating a seizure, look for trauma and consider hypoglycemia as an etiology. Allow the seizure to run its course. Most seizures will resolve spontaneously within one to five minutes. While the patient is seizing, you can do things to protect them from harm, such as removing the patient from any hazards, such as pulling them out of the water or away from a cliff edge. Lay the patient on the ground so that they do not fall or hurt themselves any further. Do not restrain them or try to hold them down. If possible, positioning them on their side may help avoid aspiration. Once they have stopped seizing, consider the recovery position. Move objects that are a potential danger away from the patient and do not try to prevent them from biting their tongue by placing objects in their mouth. They will not swallow their tongue. You will do more harm by placing objects in their mouth. The ground trip must be halted until the patient is out of the postictal phase. This time frame may last hours up to a day and can be characterized by drowsiness, confusion, nausea, and headache. Evacuate anyone who has had a new seizure. If the patient has a known seizure disorder, it might be possible to increase the, the patient's anti-seizure medications in order to keep them in the wilderness as long as there aren't other risks such as falling from a significant height or drowning. This should only be done in conjunction after a thorough discussion with the patient and the group regarding the risks. Next up, let's talk about diabetic emergencies. Diabetic patients who travel in the wilderness have very few limitations. Most diabetics know their diabetes well and are usually able to manage it appropriately on their own. Diabetics should carry a method to measure their serum glucose levels on the trip. The diabetic should educate other people on how to use their glucose monitoring equipment in case they are unable to measure it themselves. This is especially important for you to know if you're going to be the medical provider on the If you're leading a group or providing medical care on a wilderness trek, here are some proactive precautions that you should take if you know that you will have a diabetic patient in your group. First, Check that their diabetes has been stable for one year before going to altitude. Next, the patient needs to stay well hydrated. Also, their insulin needs to be kept in an, in an appropriate temperature, otherwise it may become ineffective. The patient should have enough medication to last for a period of time past the scheduled end of the trip in case the trip is extended due to unforeseen circumstances. Diabetics must monitor their serum glucose more closely in the backcountry as food and activities will be very different. 
and always keep a sugar source nearby to treat low blood glucose if necessary. <clears throat> now, hypoglycemia is common in the backcountry. Hypoglycemia occurs when a person's blood sugar becomes too low. It could result if the patient, one, takes too much insulin or too much of, their, of an oral agent, or ate too little in comparison to the diet they are on at home, or their exertion level is much higher than usual, resulting in higher glucose metabolism than expected. The symptoms of hypoglycemia look really, really similar to a stroke. So hypoglycemia should be considered as a diagnosis. Rapid onset of confusion, irritability, combativeness or agitation, or the loss of coordination or inability to walk. They can have a headache, slurred speech, weakness or numbness, tremors, sweating. Ultimately, the treatment for hypoglycemia is sugar or glucose. Uh, administer it immediately as hypoglycemia is a true emergency where minutes count. There are several methods to give glucose. The most common is, is oral glucose paste. However, carrying a small tube of cake frosting will work. If the patient is unable to eat, you may rub the glucose solution on the gums of the patient. Once you've gotten them out of the initial stage and the patient's mentation is cleared, feed them. Give them a meal that has complex carbohydrates and protein that will last for a longer period of time. These patients must be monitored closely for the next six hours to ensure that their hypoglycemia does not recur. Patients with hypoglycemia do not require immediate evacuation. Evacuate those if their hypoglycemia returns despite treatment with glucose in a meal. Evacuate those who do not have a rapid clearing of their neurologic deficits as well. High altitude is associated with severe diabetic ketoacidosis, though the reason is unclear. Above 2,500 meters, freezing temperatures, hypoxia-induced lack of appetite, medication side effects, and the higher incidence of mountain sickness can make diabetes very difficult to control. Diabetics can travel safely to high altitudes, but they should be warned of these potential. Next, let's talk about allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. Allergic reactions, as you might expect, are very common in the backcountry. On a spectrum, there are three types of allergic reactions that exist, local, generalized, and anaphylaxis. Any of these reactions can occur within seconds of exposure to an allergen. A local reaction is, a, is very common in the wellness setting. They are characterized by red, swollen areas of skin that are usually pruritic. Topical corticosteroids provide relief and should be carried in a first aid kit. Benadryl, or diphenhydramine, may be used for the itching. Cold packs may also alleviate some of the pain or discomfort. A generalized reaction can come from any source. Symptoms include itching, hives, redness, and possibly difficulty breathing. Any of these may begin immediately or hours after the exposure occurs. Treatment is to remove the patient from the allergen and to treat them with antihistamines and possibly prednisone. Anaphylaxis is a real-life threatening emergency. It begins as a generalized reaction, but rapidly results in respiratory and or circulatory collapse. These reactions are not subtle and include pruritus, hives, flushing, and swelling of the tongue and lips. The patient will have shortness of breath, wheezing, and tightness in the chest. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal cramping sometimes occur. And last, a drop in blood pressure may also occur. The treatment for anaphylaxis must be immediate, as shock and respiratory arrest can occur in a matter of minutes. A delay of several minutes can be life-threatening. An EpiPen, or an epinephrine auto-injector, is the primary treatment. The dose is 1 in 1,000 epinephrine, 0.4 milligrams for adults, and 0.15 milligrams for children. There are many types of epinephrine auto-injectors available, and all are reasonable to use as long as they have the appropriate dosing. This auto-injector also comes in both adult and junior forms. 
Every wilderness medicine kit should carry. Give the IM injection directly into the thigh muscle through pants if necessary. There is better absorption when the IM is given in the thigh in comparison to the deltoid muscle. Be careful to hold the pen in the correct way without your thumb on the tip to avoid injecting yourself. Familiarize yourself with the pen prior to your trip to avoid confusion in an emergency. A second dose of epinephrine may be required within 5 to 20 minutes after the first dose, depending on the severity of symptoms and the initial response to epinephrine. Antihistamines need to be given. There is no best antihistamine, although nonspecific antihistamines such as diphenhydramine or Benadryl, uh, another is chlorpheniramine or chlortrimeton, are most commonly used. An H2 blocker such as cimetidine or tagamet, ranitidine or Zantac, or famotidine, pepsid, should be administered in addition to other antihistamines. Steroids should also be given, such as prednisone, and inhaled albuterol can be used for wheezing. All patients with anaphylaxis require immediate evacuation from the wilderness. Although the patient may rapidly improve with epinephrine and all the other medications, they are at risk of rebound anaphylaxis that could be worse than the initial reaction. Those with local and generalized reactions do not usually require evacuation unless their symptoms do not resolve with treatment or if they have worsening symptoms. Now, let's talk about abdominal emergencies. Any cause of abdominal pain in a city can also be a cause of pain in the backcountry. However, there are some causes that are more common in the backcountry. It can be a challenge to know what is causing the pain and if a person should be evacuated from the backcountry. First would be severe constipation or fecal impaction. This is more common in the wilderness than people realize. A person can become dehydrated easily, which leads to heart stools. They may feel awkward defecating outdoors, the delay of which can lead to impact. Symptoms are not stooling for several days, gradually increasing the pain. The treatment is high levels of hydration plus increased fiber. Bowel stimulants are indicated. Caffeinated drinks can stimulate bowel motility as well. Fecal impaction is not an indication for immediate evacuation, but it can lead to severe problems if not resolved. Another very common cause of backcountry abdominal pain would be gastritis or gastroenteritis. These are often caused by a virus or a bacterium that is ingested with food. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain or discomfort. The patient often has or will have diarrhea that may be watery and contains some mucus and blood. They may have fever. Patients may have significant malaise with the fever. Dehydration may occur from an inability to take liquids and considerable fluid loss from diarrhea. While in an urban setting, diarrhea is uncomfortable, in the wilderness setting, it can pose a serious problem. Treatment is large amounts of fluids that contain sugar and electrolytes. This should be given frequently in smaller than usual amounts due to nausea and vomiting. Imodium may be used in those with frequent stooling. However, this is an area of controversy due to the concern of worsening illness in those with symptoms due to a bacterial infection. Patients may respond to Cipro, particularly those with bloody stools and fever. Most patients with gastroenteritis will resolve their symptoms in 24 to 48 hours with symptomatic treatment. Those with intractable nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea who have significant dehydration, abdominal pain, or fever should be evacuated. Now, another cause could be an ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancy is probably the most urgent cause of, of abdominal pain due to its potential to take a life. The symptoms are not subtle. There is lower abdominal pain or abnormal vaginal bleeding in a sexually active, fertile female. The pain may be in the midline or unilateral location depending on where the ectopic pregnancy is located. Initially, 
the pain may be mild in nature. Not all patients will have vaginal bleeding or specific vaginal symptoms. An over-the-counter uterine pregnancy test is very reliable and accurate in determining pregnancy. The best urine sample is the first morning void it is the, that is, it is the most concentrated. Always consider bringing several pregnancy tests along if you are the responsible healthcare provider on a wilderness adventure. An important differential diagnosis is a ruptured ovarian cyst, which presents similarly with unilateral pain, but with a negative pregnancy test. A cyst that ruptures adjacent to a vessel may continue to hemorrhage and requires urgent and emergent surgical intervention. Treatment is immediate evacuation for any patient you think might have an ectopic pregnancy. This is a true medical emergency and immediate evacuation is required. Next would be appendicitis. Appendicitis does occur in the backcountry and it can be difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to diagnose appendicitis in the hospital setting, even with diagnostic testing. So you can imagine the difficulty to make a diagnosis in the wilderness setting. Symptoms of appendicitis often start as epigastric discomfort that may be associated with anorexia, nausea, possible vomiting, the abdominal pain progressively worsens over 6 to 24 hours as it localizes to the right lower quadrant. The patient will develop initial tenderness in the right lower quadrant, which then progresses to peritoneal signs. Patients may develop a fever much later in the disease process. Ensure that the patient has not already had their appendix removed. Appendicitis is a disease that requires surgical removal. All patients whom you suspect of having appendicitis should be evacuated. Consider administering antibiotics such as Cipro if the patient is not going to be evacuated within four hours. This may help delay perforation or help treat the, the patient if their appendix has already perforated. Evacuate all cases of suspected appendicitis. Gallstones are another potential cause of pain in the wilderness, and they happen, um, not necessarily more frequently than if one is at home, however. Most people know if they have gallstones or have had gallstones and will recognize the pain. This will help in making decisions. Gallstones present with abdominal pain that is typically located in the middle of the abdomen. The pain may radiate to the back or to the right shoulder. Nausea and vomiting are common and may be the initial symptoms before the pain. Treatment is to first ask the patient if they have gallstones or if they have their gallbladder. It's possible that, that this may have been removed. Pain relief can be provided with ibuprofen or possibly opiate analgesics depending on the amount of pain. A, quote, gallbladder attack alone is not necessarily an indication for evacuation unless the symptoms do not resolve over 6 to 12 hours. Evacuate those patients who have continuous or worsening pain or intractable nausea and vomiting. Another type of stone is a kidney stone. Kidney stones can occur in the backcountry and possibly with more frequency in people who are prone to them. The reason is dehydration. People who have had kidney stones should make sure they stay hydrated. Symptoms are the sudden onset of severe pain in the flank or back or unilateral abdominal pain. The pain is colicky and may radiate to the groin. The patient has difficulty finding a comfortable position and will be writhing in pain. Treat them with pain relief. Ibuprofen may help, but a narcotic may be needed. The primary reason to evacuate someone is due to the amount of pain they are in. Most patients will require evacuation, but those achieving adequate pain control with NSAIDs such as ibuprofen may be able to stay in the wilderness. Now, general evacuation guidelines for abdominal pain are to evacuate the patient if the abdominal pain has any of the following features. First, 
The pain is associated with any signs or symptoms of shock. Next, the pain persists for longer than 24 hours or gets progressively worse over a period of time. The pain localizes, and there are signs of guarding rigidity and tenderness. Blood appears on the vomit feces of urine. The pain is associated with a high fever, higher than 102 degrees Fahrenheit. The patient has a positive pregnancy test, or the patient is unable to eat or drink. And that concludes medical problems in the wilderness. Again, this was part two. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, please come back and keep listening. Thank you.